0: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: Hello, I'm Freddie Sayers, and this is Unheard. Back in March, everyone's world suddenly changed. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction you must stay at home. So, on day one of lockdown, we launched Lockdown TV a place where we could gather experts, scientists, writers, politicians, thinkers, to try to help us understand what was going on in this strange moment, and what kind of world we were going to get at the end of it. And now, due to popular demand, here we are in podcast form. Welcome to Lockdown TV. So what is the real origin of COVID-19? Did it, as some people say, start in a lab? Was it an accident? Or was it a naturally occurring virus? Why does it even matter? You might think that after everything that's happened, it's not an important question. Well, I think it does matter. Because first of all, we want to make sure it doesn't happen again. And it would help to know how it started to do that. It's claimed a lot of lives and it's turned the world upside down. So we should know just for posterity. But perhaps most importantly, the conversation around it, the idea that some ideas became taboo, the scientific community closing ranks around certain theories over others, has actually been quite symptomatic of a dangerous turn in the conversation in the last year. So I think it's really important to try and uncover it. Happily, we have someone called Nicholas Wade joining us now to help us do just that.
2: So if you step out of line, and, and if you say, well, I think this virus may have escaped from the lab, good luck on getting your grant
1: renewed. A science writer of many years at the New York Times for 30 years, I believe, and have recently published a very long technical article, pretty much going through all of the evidence we have for the different theories as to how COVID-19 originated. Hi, Nicholas. Uh, Hi. To begin with, what are the two main theories as regards COVID 19 origin story?
2: Well, one theory is that uh, it uh, jumped naturally from an animal host to uh, humans, uh, something that happens uh, uh, quite a lot. Uh, the other theory is that it escaped from a, a virology lab in Wuhan, where they were working on just this kind of virus, that it probably infected some of the co workers and from there got out into the population at large. Those are the two principal theories.
1: And at least until now, where there seems to be a little bit of a change in the tone around this topic, the sort of conventional consensus view has been the first of those, right? That it was a naturally occurring and jumped from an animal to human.
2: Uh, That's right. And that's partly because the idea is very plausible. We have already had uh, two recent epidemics originating from bat viruses, the SARS-1 epidemic of 2002 and the epidemic a few years later. Uh, plus this the structure of this virus makes clear it belongs to a family of bat viruses or was derived from them. So natural emergence uh, you know, is, is very plausible. And right from the start, uh, the scientists who were behind on this, uh, several of whom had a, a, an interest in the issue, uh, have, uh, have assured us that this must be a natural uh, occurrence, that lab escape was out of the question. And the media by and large didn't question this assumption as critically as they should have done. So uh, what you say is exactly right for the last 15 months, natural emergence has been the prevailing theory.
1: So you mentioned some of the scientists have other reasons for doing that. Let's just get into that before we get into the main evidence around the virus itself, because this really uh, stood out to me from your piece. So that the the man who actually organised the original letter to Lancet magazine, which is a very high status medical publication, um, who is also on the World Health Organization committee investigating the origins of the virus, actually was involved in procuring funding for virology research at Wuhan. Is, Is that right?
2: Uh, yes, that's correct. Um, his name is Peter Dashak, and he's president of the EcoHealth Alliance in New York, uh, which specializes in, in monitoring viruses uh, uh, the world over. And uh, the National Institutes of Health um, here in the U.S. gave large grants to Dr. Daschak, which he in turn passed on to the Wuhan Institute um, of Virology.
1: And this wasn't talked about at the time where he was just offering his expert opinion that that Wuhan Institute of Virology was not involved in the original COVID-19 problem.
2: Well, in the letter to the Lancet, which you mentioned, which later turned out had been organised by Dr. Daszak, uh, he of course had a, had a considerable interest in the outcome because if the lab, if the virus had escaped from the Wuhan lab which he had funded, uh, he would be uh, uh, potentially to blame. Uh, but this conflict of interest was not declared in the Lancet letter, which moreover concluded, uh, we we declare no conflict of interest.
1: He's on the World Health Organization, investigation committee, is that right? So it's not only that he's been arranging public statements that seek to dispel any doubt around the origins of the virus, he's actually doing the official investigation into it.
2: Uh, yes, he has been a very central um, player all along. Uh, the WHO commission, uh, the membership was more or less controlled by the Chinese, which had sort of s- strong influence over the WHO and the conditions under which she would allow the commission into the country. And I think it's fair to say that, you know, the member, all of the membership was acceptable to the Chinese, including Dr. Dasher.
1: Because that I remember that well, they there was they went and visited the lab. And then there was a press conference. And there was a declaration what seemed to be quite immediate declaration that the lab leak theory had been ruled out, as I recall. Um, We actually published an investigation into that an article by a prize winning investigative journalist called Ian Birrell. uh, And that was then censored on Facebook saying that this this article contains misinformation. uh, And all it was doing was questioning the validity of some of those World Health Organization findings. So this spreads very far in terms of the willingness not to ask these kind of questions.
2: Well, that's right. In Burrell has been an outstanding reporter on this uh, issue. Facebook's behavior has been quite amazing. It, it, it's almost as if you're under the control of the Chinese government, because my article as well, uh, I don't know if that's still the case, but at least at one point, uh, if if you pulled it up, you were given a similar message, you were then directed to a little Chinese propaganda um, site. I, I was quite quite astounded that Facebook would behave in this Way and it um, sort of shows the severe limitations of its present system for uh, for addressing the content it carries.
1: Right. So let's get into the actual substance here, Nicholas. We're, we we will not, unlike those other people we talked about, try to rake over any coals or avoid any questions. Where do we start then? So the the first theory, the the one that has been the consensus theory, is this natural evolution theory, which basically entails that this was a virus found in the bat population, which would have leapt onto humans via an intermediary species. Is that
2: pretty much it? Uh, yes, because it's all by analogy with the two previous uh, epidemics. So in the case of SARS-1, the virus came from bats to uh, animals called civets, which are sort of sold in Chinese wet markets and from civets, it jumped to people. In the case of MERS, the intermediary host was uh, camels or dromedaries. Um, so the natural assumption was uh, that SARS-2 had reached the human population
1: by this route. So how did they know in those previous epidemics that that's what had happened?
2: Well, it's easy because the, the virus, when it makes this progression, leaves all kinds of telltale signs in the environment. I mean, first of all, there's the, the, the host, Population of bats, which you can uh, uh, find, then uh, th- there's an enormous trace left in in the human serology. So hospitals have sort of surveillance records, and you can go back and test what people have been exposed to. So in the case of SARS-1, which is sort of very indicative, I think you see the virus of picking up one mutation after another as it adapted itself first. Uh, to civets, and, and then to humans. So at first it was a very sort of mild pathogen in humans, and then a few more mutations made it a stronger pathogen, and a, f- a few more, I think there's are sort of 30 mutations altogether. By this time it was a really strong pathogen. So you can track that retrospectively uh, in, in the human population. With the case of SARS-2, what has become increasingly clear, and it's increasingly bizarre, is that there is no such trace. of of SARS-2 emerging in the natural environment in the same pattern as SARS-1. And that that WHO commission that went to Beijing, uh, as as you mentioned, although it seemed at first sight propaganda victory for the Chinese because they kept on saying a lab escape is ridiculous, we're hardly going to even consider it. What was also clear was that the Chinese had not been able to provide a shred of evidence in favour of the natural emergence hypothesis. So each month that goes by and you have no more evidence of natural emergence makes you have to consider the more strongly the lab escape hypothesis.
1: So in other words, if it was the normal natural emergence route as the previous epidemics, by now you would have expected either some trace in the virus itself, or this intermediary species to have been identified, and and so far it hasn't.
2: Uh, that's exactly true. So with with SARS one, I think we knew we we could see the trace in the natural environment after three months, and after MERS it was after seven months we 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 found this evidence. So despite a presumably very intensive search by the uh, the Chinese, uh, unless they knew better, bother um, we haven't found any of this
1: to back up. The natural emergence hypothesis for SARS-CoV-2. Is there anything else on that side of the equation that we should cover off? I mean, is there any other evidence for the natural emergence hypothesis? If we got a expert here who believes in it, what, what will he or she say in its favour?
2: I think all, all that they can say is that it's a very plausible hypothesis. Uh, uh, the, the, whole, and the whole idea rests on this single conjecture that it followed in the track of SARS-1 and MERS and and the many other viruses that have jumped from animals. But what is clear is that there is no direct evidence for natural emergence. You know, I should quickly add, there's no direct evidence for lab escape either. But both both these scenarios are plausible conjectures with no direct evidence supporting them. But you'd certainly expect a lot of it in the case uh, of, of, of SARS-2. And we have no direct evidence yet for natural emergence.
1: So let's turn to potential scenario number two, then, which is that the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which as its name suggests, is situated right in the middle of Wuhan in China, where the first examples of uh, COVID-19 were discovered, in some way synthesized this virus as part of an experiment. Is that the second theory?
2: Uh, yes, it is, um, and, and it's, it's more precise than that because um, w- we know exactly what they were doing, at least in general, outline, because uh, they were funded by the National Institutes of Health via um, Peter Dashak. and there are uh, abstracts available, not, not, not the full grant proposal itself, but at least an abstract of what the, their grant was going to do publicly available, and you can tell that they were they were doing what virologists all around the world do. They were trying to, and this is perfectly legitimate research if one thinks it's worth it. Um, they, they were trying to get a jump ahead of t- ahead of nature. They are trying to predict what couple of tweaks nature might need to make in an animal virus to make it a human pathogen. And to do that, they were trying to recapitulate this these steps in the lab, which of course is highly dangerous. If in fact you succeed, then you've got a dangerous pathogen. And the way they were doing this, they were taking um, various coronaviruses. Uh, this is a family of viruses to which SARS-CoV-2 belongs. And they were inserting into a, a, a viral backbone, the spike proteins that are the, that are what determines the host that the virus uh, can attack. So they were inserting one sp- spike protein after another, trying to increase the infectivity of the virus until they had something that would be a human pathogen. So they were well on the track by the design of their experiments to create, if not SARS CoV 2 itself, something very like it.
1: So this is a, t- a technology and a process that uh, you mentioned there's American scientists involved who first developed it and then seem to have taught the um, scientists at the Wuhan Institute how to do it, and they then continued it. Is that right? So there's almost an American Chinese collaboration.
2: Uh, Yes, you could put it that way. Um, uh, I know, in a way, virologists sort of share all these techniques, there are sort of international community of scientists, and they will uh, share agents and uh, knowledge and training with each other. So, uh, Dr. Zhengli, she was the uh, chief scientist at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. She's,
1: she, you refer, she's referred to as bat lady at times. Uh, right.
2: she's, she's well known in uh, China for uh, collecting these bat viruses, which she's been doing for 20 years or so. So and it's not necessarily a pejorative um, term. It's just a sort of moniker she's acquired. So during the course of her her work on these bat viruses. She went to work with Ralph Barrick uh, uh, in uh, North Carolina, who's the leading American expert on coronaviruses, and he had developed um, th- this technique of uh, transferring um, spike proteins from one virus to another to make them more infective, you know, for the purpose of trying to predict future outbreaks. As I said, so so she and Barrick published a paper in 2015 in which they generated a a novel virus, Um, scientists call this a chimera because it's a mixture of two genomes. They they generated a chimera virus that um, had uh, the property of uh, infecting humans. So there was lots of concern about this experiment at the time uh, and, and discussion of whether this was the right way to go. Barrick argued that, well, the benefits of doing this out- outweigh the risks, and we should be allowed to go ahead.
1: They're actually creating a new virus in the lab and are seeing whether those, the virus infects human-like organisms. Is that, is that what's happening in the lab?
2: Uh, yes, that's correct. They're, they're creating a novel virus that did not exist before in nature, by combining the pieces of existing viruses together. And then, of course, you can't infect humans. That would be unethical. But they will test them either on cultures of human cells growing in the lab or on what they call humanized mice. So these are mice that have been genetically engineered so that the um, cells of their airways uh, uh, carry the very same uh, uh, protein called ACE2, which human cells carry and which is the target of SARS-CoV-2. So these viruses are trained up on on humanised mice.
1: So in the lab leak scenario, how would the virus have left the lab?
0: Selling a little or a lot? So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
2: Well, it would have left, the, it could very easily have left the lab, uh, 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 because of the safety conditions under which Dr. She was working, so as you say in her defence, she was uh, following the same international rules for working with coronaviruses uh, as as all other virologists do. So lab safety is sort of measured in three levels, depending on the number of sort of safety precautions you have, from one to four. BSL one is the uh, is the easiest laxus to work in, and BSL4, that's where you see people in sort of space suits, uh, space suits uh, walking around these bubbles over their heads. So, virologists don't really like to work in BSL4 conditions. It's very sort of cumbersome; everything takes twice as long, and and the rules for working with coronavirus were really you might think quite lax. So if you were working with SARS-1 or MERS, which we know, of course, human pandemics, you had to use the third level up, BSL-3. If you were working with just any other coronavirus, whatever manipulations you were doing to it, you could work in BSL-2. So BSL-2 just means, well, you wear uh, wear gloves and and a coat, and uh, you put up a notice saying biohazard, and you work under hoods, that's about it. It's not it, I mean, it, it's sort of roughly very effective. It's not completely effective.
1: And do you have confirmation from the Chinese scientists that that was the safety level they were working under?
2: Um, yes, in several ways. Firstly, Dr. Xi describes in her experiments, what safety level she was working under. And and at least some maybe much or all of this work was in VSL level two. And moreover, Dr. Xi herself uh, told Science magazine in an interview, she that all her work was done in BSL two or three.
1: So you've mentioned Dr. She a few times, uh, Mr. Barrack. Have you approached these scientists and put your theories to them? Have you got any response?
2: Uh, no, I haven't. Um, and, and probably I should have done. Doc- now, Dr. Barrack is is a signatory of the letter that appeared in Science. Um, uh, 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 this week, uh, calling for an investigation to the lab escape theory. So he certainly believes that lab escape is possible and should be investigated. Um Dr. She is generally rather hard to reach.
1: So she did um, submit to a question and answer interview with Science magazine, uh, didn't she where she gave quite legalistic, but extended answers to some of those questions that you pose. And for example, she was very clear that SARS-CoV-2. They had done a genomic sequence of it, which they themselves submitted to the World Health Organization in early January of last year. They were sure at that moment that they had not come in contact with it before they had not done any experiments with it before in the lab. Uh, And she even goes so far as to say she has not done any of these synthesised virus experiments on viruses which have not been detailed and recorded. So she's quite comprehensive in saying, this is not true. What's your reaction to those statements?
2: Well, I think you have to understand her statements against the background that the, the Chinese authorities are are controlling very carefully all information that that comes out. So basically, they've uh, they've put a seal on all information, all the all the Wuhan Institute of Virology's uh, records. Uh, are sealed. All Dr. She's experiments are sealed. What viruses she was working on? Um, all Chinese databases uh, concerning uh, bat viruses uh, have been made inaccessible. So you could say, well, this is the way authoritarian regimes behave anyway. But I think there is a there's a sort of pattern to what the Chinese authorities are doing. And this means because they're locking down all all information in general, I think it's not illogical to assume that all the information they do let out is released for a purpose. Uh, And that overall purpose is to deny that lab escape happened and to point people towards natural emergence. So I think... Uh, you know, I'm, Dr. Xi is in a sort of terrible position, and, and I, I, I hesitate to say she's she's, she's lying. But I, I think it, everyone can see that, that she's probably not absolutely free in what she says, it has to conform to, to the narrative the Chinese authorities are trying to project.
1: So if, Nicholas, obviously, this is a big if, and as you say, there isn't conclusive evidence for either of these theories at the moment, they are just conjecture. But if it is true, what would that then mean? That would mean some sort of cover up within the Chinese administration? Would that mean a cover up even beyond China's borders, do you think?
2: Um, yes, and no. I mean, to your first question, yes, the, the, the Chinese authorities are clearly covering up evidence, they refuse to let the WHO commission see anything of value. Um, so, in the sort of plainest sense of the term, they are covering it up, covering up wh- wh- whatever it is they want to remain concealed. Now, I don't think anyone else is is taking positive steps to cover things up. Um, it, it's just that so uh, virologists themselves all around the world are not sort of particularly keen on the idea that that their technology is at the root of a a really terrible pandemic. So very naturally, they're not not inclined to think that the virus could have escaped from a lab. And when these these two very influential letters came out in early last year, the Lancet one that you mentioned, and another in Nature Medicine, this was just a sort of handful of people, authors of of them No other virologist stepped forward to dispute that. No virologist said, well, we, we should certainly consider lab escapes is a logical possibility. Uh, and to do so would have been very dangerous for them because, you know, unfortunately on academic campuses for all kinds of reasons, we don't have free speech anymore. And for virologists, th- they depend for their careers on being awarded grants by other virologists. So the way grants are distributed both in the US and the UK, basically is you have... A peer review the committees of, of expert virologists who review the grant applications from other virologists. So if you step out of line, and, and if you say, well, I think this virus may have escaped from the lab, you know, good luck on getting your grant renewed at the next review period. So that is the reason why I think why virologists have been so silent.
1: I guess that's not the whole reason though, is it? So in a part, as you say, there's a kind of professional loyalty or slash keenness to remove from the scenario uncomfortable questions that might prove awkward or embarrassing. Then there's this other question, which is politics, because Donald Trump famously was quite keen on the lab leak thesis. Um, He said so much that out there, he said that he believes it to be true quite a few times. Uh, And so suddenly it became a kind of Donald Trump conspiracy theory to Ask that, those questions, and it became the sensible person's, you know, scientific consensus view to st- steer away from those questions. Is that fair? Do you think?
2: Yes, that's exactly correct. I mean, it's extremely, un- it's extremely unfortunate that the issues become politicized, uh, and and it's so, so, so it's so ridiculous because politics has absolutely nothing useful to contribute to this issue. It's a scientific issue and should be seen as such. But you're right. As soon as as Trump said that. That politicized it. So if you're on the left, you're against uh, lab escape. And if you're on the right, you're more open to it. I'm sure the way that started was that if you look at what the intelligence services in the U.S. have said, both during the Trump administration and during the Biden administration, they have said very simply that lab escape cannot be ruled out. They've been very consistent. So I'm sure that's what they said to Trump. Lab escape cannot be ruled out. Uh, He then twisted that into saying, well, it was it definitely came from Wuhan lab. I think that's how it all started. And it's very regrettable.
1: It's now changing somewhat. Do you notice that it feels like in the last couple of weeks, some senior credible scientists um, have been coming on board with wanting to investigate this theory more? Do you feel like the tide is turning in, in favour of a lab leak hypothesis?
2: Um, yes, I, I do. And the, the letter in science from the 18 scientists, uh, uh, I think that will start to to change things a lot. Um, I think it's gradually dawning on people that the, that the WHO commission came back empty-handed with respect to the natural emergence hypothesis. So they're beginning to see there's no evidence there. And however plausible that may have been to begin with, it's, in, it's increasingly less plausible month by month. So that, that I think is contributing to a turn of, of opinion, though it's still highly polarized. I, I, I've been very disappointed that the, the the left has paid no attention to my article, whereas I keep getting requests from the right, I would much prefer to, that all sides were interested.
1: There's one piece of evidence that we haven't talked about, uh, which is what you refer to as the nearest thing to a smoking gun, in favour of the lab leak hypothesis. And it's quite technical, uh, but I think we should try and go into it to share it with our viewers. This is to do with the evidence in the genes of the virus itself that seem to suggest human engineering as opposed to natural evolution? What is it?
2: Well, uh, in the middle of the gene for the spike protein, there is a little insert called the furin cleavage site. And it's very important for the virus when it attacks a human cell uh, with one part of its spike protein. The other part then has to Uh, help the virus merge with the the membrane of the human cell. But the other part can't do that unless the junction between the two halves of of spike uh, is cut. So there's a natural protein on the surface of human cells called furin, which has a quite different purpose. But it will cut any protein it sees that has a particular sequence of amino acids. and the, the, the genetic sequence that specifies these amino acids is present right there between the two parts of SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. So the reason this sort of sticks out like a sore thumb is that is that no other member of of the SARS-CoV-2 uh, 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 coronavirus family has this furin cleavage site. So the, the way viruses uh, sort of acquire new properties in, in general is either by mutation, which is very unlikely in this case because so many mutations will be involved, or it's by something called recombination. So that happens when two viruses happen to infect the, the same cell. And as their uh, uh, nuclear, uh, uh, nuclear material is, is duplicated, Viruses get assembled accidentally with bits and pieces of, of the other virus. So, this is a way in which sort of properties can, um, uh, can be exchanged all or, or among a family of viruses. But what, what you cannot acquire by recombination is a property that your, your virus family does not possess. And because no other beta coronavirus of the SARS CoV 2 family, they're called SARS viruses has a furin cleavage site, therefore, it could, you have to consider the possibility that it was inserted in a lab. And in fact, virologists have known for years that the way to soup up a virus and make it really infective is to add is to insert a furin cleavage site.
1: So is there no way that SARS-CoV-2 could have acquired a furin cleavage site naturally?
2: Well, you can't be as absolute as that because viruses are always doing unexpected things. I mean, this is sort of uh, evolution's ways or m- billions of billions of variations and natural selection will pick the one that works that often to our, our eyes seems sort of very unlikely. So you can't rule out the possibility that somehow, um, somehow the, the Furian cleavage site was acquired naturally. Um, But it's it's just one of the extra implausibilities that you need to explain on the lab emergence theory. You've got all these other things to explain. Why does it break out at the the, the doorstep of the World Institute of Virology? Why was it perfectly adapted to human uh, cells right from the start, unlike all other viruses? Why does it have a furium cleavage shot? So there are all these improbabilities that you need to uh, uh, explain, and this is just another one.
1: So is there any evidence that Dr. Shi and her group inside the Wuhan Virology Institute were inserting furin cleavage sites into other viruses to make them more infective with humans.
2: Well, not specifically, but I believe there's at least one paper in which Dr. Shi has inserted a furin cleavage site. I mean, she and her colleagues certainly knew about this technology. I mean, it sort of not—it's not, it's old hat technology; it's widely known. You insert a furin and cleavage and shine if you want to soup up a virus. And she certainly could have done it.
1: We don't know that she did. So, SARS CoV 2, COVID 19, contains this feature then that is, makes it particularly successful at attacking humans, which is something that we know earlier labs and earlier scientists have done in order to try and make a virus more effective. And that in your mind is quite a compelling piece of evidence in favour of the idea that it's a lab leak virus.
2: Uh, Yes, it's an important piece of evidence. Um, It's by itself is certainly not proof. uh, But it's certainly something that will catch the attention of virologists, and they will recognise that it's something that needs to be explained one way or another.
1: So having reviewed all of this evidence, Nicholas, you've got your science journalist hat on. What do you think happened?
2: Well, as I say in the article, there's no direct evidence for either theory, so there's no proof for either theory. Um, but, But if you take the available evidence and say which theory explains it better, well, on present evidence, in my view, lab escape explains it better. So that's what I think is the more probable outcome based on what we know so
1: far. Nicholas Wade, thank you so much for talking us through it. You're very welcome.
2: Thanks for your interest.
1: Well, there you have it. Thanks to Nicholas Wade for talking us through that. Uh, The furin cleavage site, let it never be said that we don't get technical enough on this show, uh, is a feature of a virus that looks like it might not definitely, but might have been inserted by man in terms of a laboratory instead of being naturally evolved. So Evidence there for you to arrive at your own conclusions. Clearly, if it was an escape from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, the implications of that would be enormous. Thanks for watching. This was Lockdown TV.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods